0: We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Well, good evening. Welcome. My name is Jonathan Gregory. I'm one of the pastors here. Particularly warm welcome if you're new to us, if you're visiting, maybe you've moved into the area, a new job. Uh, it's lovely to, to have you with us this evening. As um, Craig said, we're looking at a new sermon series uh, in 1 John. So I'm going to uh, pray for us. Uh, we need God's help to understand his word. And then we're going to uh, have a look at what God is going to say to us this, this evening. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit moved in the heart of John the Apostle uh, to write the letter of 1 John. Father, we're expecting that you'll speak to us as a church through this letter throughout this autumn term. Please, would we have listening ears, soft hearts, uh, and Father, please change us through your word. Help me to explain it uh, well and properly as I should. And I pray these things, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so this week we're starting uh, this sermon series, 1 John. That's going to go up to roughly about Christmas. Uh, and I'm assuming that most of us may not be overly familiar with this letter of 1 John. So research suggests, based on the number of sermons preached in churches, that 1 John ranks 19th out of the 27 uh, books of the New Testament. So uh, in that list, you're more likely, obviously there are, there are exceptions, but you're more likely to have heard a sermon on Revelation than you've had on 1 John. And that's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? But we are missing out if we do not know 1 John at all, or we do not know 1 John very well. Um, it was a letter written by one of the very first followers of Jesus, the Apostle John. Uh, and John was writing to, to either a church or a group of churches, we're not quite sure. Um, but, uh, and they were unsure, though, where they stood before God. These Christian believers who were genuine Christians, were unsure where they stood before God, and John wrote his letter because he wanted his readers to be confident, to be sure that they were really uh, Christians, that they what they believed was true, and they were fully accepted and forgiven by God the Father. And that's why we've called this sermon series "Genuine," and there's all the subtitle. It's all about how to know that you really know God. How to know that you really know God. And in a group this size, there's going to be people at many different stages. Some of us may not call ourselves Christians, but we're looking into the Christian faith. And thank you for taking the risk this evening about coming through the doors of a church. It's great to have you here. But you might be wondering, how can I be sure what the Bible says about Jesus' is true? How can I be sure? If I'm going to make a big step from not being a Christian to being a Christian, I need to be sure. Uh, How can I be sure? Others of us may have grown up in Christian families and going to church and believing God was just what we did because our parents did it. Uh, But perhaps now that you've gone to secondary school, uh, maybe you're facing more challenges to your faith than you're used to. Or you've just arrived in Birmingham to start your first job or a new degree and you're discovering a new freedom from your parents. Uh, Don't ring home and tell them, but a new new freedom from your parents to decide things for yourself. And a new situation and that new freedom can lead you to ask, you know, am I sure I'm a Christian? I know my parents are. Is it for me? Um, How do I tell if I am a Christian? You know, I know that Christianity isn't inherited. You have know, got to decide for myself, how can I be sure that I'm Christian? And why do I believe what I say I believe? I know my parents believe it, but do I believe it? And if so, why? And others of us would say we're most definitely Christians. But being a Christian doesn't eliminate doubt from our lives. And we can be asking questions, Maybe, maybe not now, but sometime during our Christian walk we can ask questions such as can i really be sure i'm forgiven i keep on failing god and it, and it hurts me and, and i feel can i be forgiven because i keep on doing it can i be sure that god will welcome me into heaven and so those are the three sort of stages many uh, different stages in between it's like a, a spectrum uh, but god the holy spirit moved the apostle john to write his letter because he wants christians to be sure they're christians to be sure they have eternal life to be sure that they are forgiven and that is wonderful news isn't it to to be a hundred percent certain that if you die tonight god would welcome you into heaven that's great uh, news and uh, that's something uh, if, if we want to be sure about it uh, then uh, keep on coming. I don't know quite know what uh, this autumn's must-see Sunday evening television is. Is it Blue Planet? Is it, And it's not Downson Ave anymore. That's gone. Uh, but isn't it worth coming here and hearing how you can be sure that you're forgiven rather than going home, set the video recorder, or uh, watch on streaming? So as John begins his letter, he wants his readers to be sure that they are in a relationship with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, we can be sure about Jesus because of eyewitness testimony at verses 1 and 2. Do you know that we share something in common with the original readers of 1 John? Do you realize that? Here's what it is. Neither we nor they ever saw Jesus or heard Jesus or was physically in Jesus' presence. So how could they be sure that what they believed about Jesus was right? How can we be sure 2,000 years later what we believe About Jesus right. And so John's answer to this original readers was, you can be sure because the apostles were eyewitnesses of when God stepped down into creation. Let's have a a look at verse 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, uh, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you The eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. You know, and it might not seem very obvious that he's talking about Jesus because he doesn't use the word, the name Jesus, any of the way through, but he's using different titles for Jesus to describe some things about what he's like. So, for example, in verse 1, John describes Jesus as that which was from the beginning. Well, we all have beginnings, don't you? So, my. beginning was january 1976 maybe more specifically you could say that my beginning was perhaps march or april 1975 but i'm going to move on from that. but but before that i didn't exist i was nowhere i was i just didn't exist but jesus never had a beginning that's why john describes jesus in verse two as the eternal life which was with the father jesus is it is the eternal life he has always existed. You can never go far enough back in time to a time when Jesus didn't exist. And the reason for that is because he is God, and God has always existed. I knew the description of Jesus, the word of life at the end of verse 1. Verse 1 describes Jesus as the word because we communicate to each other by our words, don't we? That's how I'm doing it now. I'm speaking to you, and I'm communicating to you. And that is what, what God did through Jesus. He came uh, to, to earth to reveal himself to us, to communicate to us. So if I use my words to say at the age of seven, I jumped off a garage roof and fractured my, my left leg, well, that would reveal something about me, wouldn't it? It'd reveal I was a bit thick at age seven. Uh, I'm not going to ask you whether you think I'm still thick. But, and generally, I don't look before I leap. So calling Jesus the word of life means that he revealed to human beings how they could enjoy eternal life with his heavenly father. That's, what, that's why he's called uh, the, the, you know, the word of life. And John's big point is that readers, uh, his readers who never saw Jesus, never touched him, never, um, never heard him, can be confident of what they know because John, the author of this letter, was an eyewitness of Jesus. But it wasn't only John. If you look at verse 1, he uses the word we... And he's referring to the other apostles, such as Matthew and Peter and James uh, and Andrew, who are also eyewitnesses of Jesus. In particular, the, uh, in fact, the qualification for being an apostle was being an eyewitness of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. And that's, that's why there are no apostles today, with the, you know, with the capital A, because we, none of us have seen Jesus' death or resurrection. And John knew, and the other apostles physically heard Jesus speak the words that we have in the gospels they heard him they heard god's voice they physically saw jesus both before his death and resurrection and also afterwards when he rose again from the dead and then ascended to heaven and with their hands they touched jesus these men were probably hugged by the god of the whole universe that isn't an amazing thought these men actually touched God. And these apostles were eyewitnesses, not only to Jesus' life, but also to Jesus' teaching. And Christianity is based on eyewitness testimony. We can be sure that it happened. It's rooted in history. If you're not a Christian, then you may be dubious. You might be thinking, well, anyone can claim that eyewitnesses are something. How can I know for sure that John really was an eyewitness of Jesus? And you know what? Fair, fair point, fair question. Well, because Christianity is rooted in history, uh, one of the ways you can you can build your uh, assurance that that John was really a, a, an eyewitness is by investigating the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life to see if they are true. Let me suggest a few options of how you can investigate Christianity for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. You can read the, the original source documents, but also you can read other things that's going to support support it. I don't know whether you've ever. Uh, ever read a, li- uh, a, a book about Jesus' life, uh, sometimes the Bible can see a bit, seem a bit daunting. Why not pick up a Gospel of Mark? It's just on um, that, that, the table with the Bibles as you go out. So if you've never read uh, any biography of Jesus' life, why not read one from uh, someone uh, who uh, worked with one, one apostle, so we're under the understanding that Peter and Mark uh, uh, got together and, and helped and help write the Gospel of Mark. Uh, If you've never read that, then why not read it yourself? Maybe in the quiet of your own room, so no one knows that you're doing that. Well, perhaps you're a little bit further back than that. Maybe you uh, just think to yourself, well, can I actually trust the New Testament? Can I trust what it says? Well, if actually we've got copies of this, The Case for Christ, that are free, again on the Bible table, they're free to anyone who will read it. Why not start there? Um, Jesus Christ has split history. Uh, he, he led to a movement uh, that now is the world's biggest religion. Isn't it worth it if you've never really thought about it, never really investigated it? Why not read it if you're thinking about Christianity? I guess if you're not really uh, particularly, uh, particularly into reading, uh, what we do on a, on a Monday starting tomorrow is our Christianity Explore course. It's starting on Monday, that's tomorrow, it's 7.30. And we've got a building in Selly Oak, not far away from the Aldi on Bristol Road, and it's a relaxed atmosphere, you share a meal together, and there's an opportunity to hear uh, a little bit from the Bible, and then uh, ask questions. And if you're more of a, a learner who actually wants to discuss things, that might be something really great for you as, you're, as you just look into whether there's anything in this about, uh, in, in Christianity. But you know, Christianity's is not just for people investigating Christianity. If you call yourself a Christian, but you do not know why you believe what you believe, then Christianity Explored is very much for you, because at the very heart of the Christian faith is that Jesus literally, bodily died on a cross. On the third day, he literally, bodily rose again from the dead. And if you do not know why you believe this, if you're a Christian, but you do not know why you believe those things, and what historical evidence there is, then please go along to Christianity Explored, because that would be a great thing for you to do. Uh, go on for the first one. See how it is. And if you want to go, go back again. Uh, but if you are new to Birmingham, and particularly if, you, if you've moved into a university, people will push back on your faith. And if you do not know what you, why you believe what you believe, then that's going to be, cause you some problems. For those of us who are convinced Christians, the truth that our faith is based on eyewitness testimony of the apostles should make us more certain Of what we believe we can know for sure that what they tell us about the lord jesus is accurate we can read the four different gospels and see what they say and instead of feeling threatened by historical and archaeological evidence we should welcome it because christianity uh, stands or falls on the evidence if christianity is proved not to be true let's all go home Let's go go back and watch whatever's the the must-see TV on a Sunday night this week, because it has absolutely no difference, makes no difference to the world um, if it's untrue. And some some of you, uh, maybe students studying history or archaeology or theology, well done if you've uh, chosen to study history, the best of all the subjects, medicine, you know, (laughs) what good is that? Um, So if so, there might be times uh, when your lectures will present arguments against the historicity of the Bible, but they only give you one side of the argument. Because as you go into university, there's an imbalance between you and your lecturer. You you know less than your lecturer, plus you can argue not not as well as your lecturer. And what they might do, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I, I don't know, you might have to... Uh, make, make up your mind. Your lecturer might not tell you there are strong counter-arguments to, to, to their arguments. So let me tell you a story. I, I arrived in Birmingham in 2012, and an assistant pastor was looking after the student work. Uh, there was a student, uh, first year, well, uh, second, second, third year student uh, doing a dissertation studying ancient history at the University of Birmingham. I went to chat one day, and her dissertation was about the exodus of the Jews from slavery and the Pharaoh, as, as, as told in the Old Testament book of Exodus. And she was a little confused because her dissertation supervisor, remember the sort of the, the, the disjunction between you down here as a student and this person up here as a lecturer, the, her dissertation supervisor basically said, the Jews never uh, exited from Egypt. It's all a myth. The Bible is wrong. And I asked her, so, so I said, has your supervisor told you that there's some other arguments to what she is, uh, she is saying. And the students replied no. So I um, went to my bookshelf and I lent her this book, uh, Introduction to the Old Testament by Tremper Longman III. Now uh, let's just stop there for a moment. To, for one person to be called Tremper Longman, fine. To call your son <laughs> Tremper Longman, se- a second. okay. To call your grandson Tremper, anyway, you know, a steward's inquiry should be had on you know, the naming over in America, but anyway. Um, but I gave it to her And I said, look, in here there are arguments against what your lecturer is saying, what your dissertation supervisor is saying. And she had it for a few weeks. um, And when she returned it, she was in a much better place. Before she was really downcast, now the smile had returned. And this is what she said to me. I never knew books like this existed. They weren't on my reading list. It gave good arguments supporting what the Bible says. And she only heard about Tremper at because she belonged to a church where someone like me uh, has a book like that. An older Christian brother had a book like that and could say, here, here's some pushback on some of the people uh, who are saying that the Bible is not historically accurate. And if this female student hadn't belonged to a church, then she may never have, have, have read *Trempel on and the 3rd, and might have thought there were no strong arguments for the historicity of the Bible, thinking, well, actually, it's about on the same level as Winnie the Pooh. And in her, her doubts and confusion, she may have given up on her faith in Jesus. And wouldn't that have been an absolute tragedy, to give up on a Christian faith, not realizing that there were two sides to the arguments? but just thinking that her lecturer only gave all the arguments that were there. And I know this passage isn't directly saying this, but the story of that student shows how vital it is for Christians to belong to a church. Had she been a lone ranger Christian in her faith, she would have folded. I think she would have probably given up because, you know, she would never have come across that book, Introduction to the Old Testament. But because she was plugged into, into City Church... Her Christian family who was uh, around her was able to support her through that period. And so whether you're a student or not, it doesn't matter whether you're a student or not, if you're new to Birmingham, then make a priority to get settled into a church. If you are a lone ranger Christian, then the chances of you keeping going with the Lord Jesus are very slim indeed. He can do miracles, but he's created the church so that we can uh, grow together, encourage one another. So are you going to be committed to belong to a church? And I say belong rather than attend. Because you attend a music gig, but you belong to a family, don't you? If you're at a music gig and, uh, and you don't know anyone else around you, they don't know your names and you don't know theirs. Uh, if you weren't there, they would not miss you. Whereas when you belong to a family, your family knows your name. Your family knows when you're there and when you're missing, and they care for you. And so that's the difference between uh, belonging to a church and just attending a church. And one of the best ways of belonging to a church is to be known and to know others, is to join a small group. Because in a church our size, it's very difficult to get to know individuals by sitting uh, uh, next to them each week, because in a church this size, you might not sit next to the same person uh, two, three weeks in a row. Um, if you want to join a small group, then the, the welcome card that you had in, um, on the way in, please do fill that in and pop it in that red post box. That is the way, that is the first step to belong rather than, than just attend. You belong to a family, and you, whereas you attend a music gig. And church is a family you belong to. So second, we can be sure about having a relationship with God. um, Verses three and four. You know, so John's told his readers that they can be sure about what they've been taught. They've never seen Jesus, and so they can be sure about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because uh, the apostles were eyewitnesses. They saw, they heard, they touched Jesus. But these Christians weren't confident that they had a relationship with God. And we'll go through this later in later weeks, but. Very briefly, there are people calling themselves Christians who used to be in their church, but had left both geographically and also theologically. And they had moved out of their church and saying, actually, what, how you think you relate to God, how you have a relationship with God is wrong. This is how you have a relationship with God. And these Christians were really, they were really unsure. Who do we believe? Do we believe the, these these people have moved from our church? Or do we believe what John the Apostle Has been saying. And what in verse three, John seeks to reassure them that they have a genuine relationship with God. Verse three. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. You know, fellowship is not really a word we use much today. In the Bible, fellowship means partnering around a common cause, saying, This is this is what I agree on with you. I'm going to partner with you. In, in that. Let me illustrate this. Um, if you've ever read or seen Lord of the Rings, then you know the first book is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And it describes how two men, four hobbits, one wizard, one dwarf, and one elf unite together around the common cause of destroying the one ring. And they are in close relationship with each other. And that, that group of nine is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And so when the Bible talks about fellowship, think, think that. Think fellowship of the ring, uniting around a common cause. So uh, for Christians, that's not destroying the one ring, uniting around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so the apostles proclaimed what they'd seen and heard about Jesus so that John's readers would have fellowship or a close relationship with the apostles. And actually, if you think about that verse, that's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Because you'd expect that verse to say, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with God the Father and Jesus. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? But he doesn't say that. It says, have fellowship with us, the apostles. And so let me try and explain it. Here's uh, here's a diagram. Uh, So uh, the apostles and Christians, uh, just to say that the white arrow represents fellowship, that close unity... With apostles and christians and i guess uh, i guess the question is why is it important for christians to have fellowship with the apostles that's not not, that's not just people in the churches in one john it's also the people here tonight as christians well it's because those who have fellowship or close relationship with apostles have fellowship or a close relationship with god the father and the lord jesus here's the next picture and this, uh, this basically represents what's going on in verses 3 and 4. And it's saying that the vertical white arrow represents the, the apostles having fellowship, a close relationship with God the Father and, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so in a certain way of thinking, if you want to have a fellowship with God the Father, you've got to go through the testimony of the apostles because the, God the Father revealed himself, Jesus revealed himself to the apostles, not to us. And so if you have a close relationship with apostles, then you have a close relationship with Jesus. But what does it mean to have fellowship with the apostles? Well, it means to read what they say in the New Testaments and to believe what they say about the Lord Jesus. That's what it means. The apostles are saying, John the apostle is saying, you need to trust what I'm saying. If you reject what I'm saying, you're not rejecting me ultimately. You're rejecting God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian here this evening and you lack certainty about whether you know God the Father, whether you're really in a relationship with Jesus, um, then may I ask you, what do you make of the New Testament? What do you make of the New Testament as it tells you about Jesus? Because if you trust and believe what the New Testament says about the Lord Jesus, then John the Apostle, but more than that, God the Father wants you to be 100% sure that you're in a relationship with God, with, with, with him. He's, it's, the letter is here to encourage you, to reassure you, to reassure doubting Christians that they really are in a relationship. And so uh, verses 3 and 4 is there to give you certainty. And isn't our Heavenly Father gracious to write, take the time to write a part of the Bible it to reassure uncertain Christians? And most of us will go through a period of uncertainty sometime in our Christian lives. But I know that not all Christians will automatically think that what the Apostle says is good news. Because, you know, some genuine Christians will struggle with the words of the Apostles. Because let's be honest, sometimes the Apostles wrote things that are, A, difficult to understand, but also, B, okay to understand, but just difficult to stomach. We just find it difficult to stomach what some some of the the apostles write. So, for example, the Apostle Paul is often singled out as someone who wrote uh, some things that many people today think are uh, unloving, uh, particularly in the area of sex. And I guess in response, I'd like to uh, open your mind to a possibility, because it is possible that what we feel uh, is unloving may not be unloving at all. We're often conditioned to feel that something is unloving by the culture around us, the television we watch, the radio, the newspapers uh, that that we hear and and, and read. But who is to say our culture's definition of love is right for all times and all places? Who's to say that? So, for example, if we go on a plane and travel to uh, other countries, maybe in Africa or South America, then their definition of love might be different from ours. They might look at our culture and say, your definition of love is unloving. it's not right. And who is to say that our, defini- our culture's definition of love is, is go- is trumps theirs? That's a little bit arrogant. Um, let's move on to geography. Let's get into a DeLorean car time machine and go back to the future. It's Birmingham in 2119. And it's perfectly possible that in 100 years' time, the UK's view of love might have changed dramatically. Uh, they might look back at 2019 and think, why on earth do they think this kind of uh, thing was loving? We, we now know that's not very loving at all. You know, and if that's the case, uh, who has the right definition of love, England in 2019 or England in 2119? I, I hope you see the problem. You may not agree with the assumption that English culture could or would change its definition of love. That's my assumption, saying that, Uh, English culture could uh, change its definition of love. Um, So let me give you some evidence that such a change is perfectly possible, not in 100 years, but in 13 years. I read an article in The Independence in January 2018 about the American sitcom Friends. This is what it said. Uh, Millennials, uh, so roughly those born between 1980 and 1996. uh, Millennials watching Friends on Netflix have expressed reservations about the popular sitcom storylines, describing it as transphobic, homophobic, and sexist. While the show ran for more than 10 years until 2004, it arrived on Netflix at the end of last year in the UK. It took 13 years for the show, uh, the Friends of the Show, to move from being culturally acceptable to be culturally, in some parts, unacceptable. Only 13 years. Friends was my favorite comedy show back in the 1990s. My favorite comedy show in the 2010s is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You know, it's, it's seen as a very open and progressive show. Uh, but just listen to what this person wrote on the social media platform Reddit. Although there are lots of problematic things in Friends, like homophobic, sex, sexist jokes, storylines, it is normal because of its time. I wonder if the same would happen with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like in 15, 20 years, would people find these kind of things in it too? Because now when I think about it, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is one of the most diverse and open about uh, about the society shows out there. You know, what do you think? And that sort of then generated a discussion below it. And you know what? That is a great question to ask, isn't it? I wonder if the same will happen with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, in 20 years' time, it will look back at what's going on in Brooklyn Nine-Nine and think, well, wow, that was really uh, unloving, sexist or homophobic or whatever. And so how can we say our culture's view on love is the definition when view our views and value systems are so fluid? In 13 years, friends went from cutting edge to se- uh, sexist and homophobic. If you haven't followed my argument, then here's what I'm driving at. Here's here's the big question if you've not followed my argument. Here it is. Who gets to define what love is? Who gets to define what love is? Because if we want an objective standard of love that is valid for all times, uh, reaching back 100 years, 200 years, reaching forward 100 years, 200 years, and all places, not just Europe, but Africa, South America, North America, Australasia, Asia, then we cannot look to how our culture defines love, surely. Instead, we need an objective definition of love, a definition of love that doesn't change with the moods and the whims of of society, a definition of love that applies no matter the date or the postcode. And in order to find an unchangeable definition of love, we need to look outside this changeable world and to an unchangeable God. And when we do so, when we look to the unchangeable God, we discover this about him in 1 John 4 verse 16. This is what it says. God is love. God is love. John doesn't say God is loving. Rather, he says God is love. God is the very definition of love. So he's saying that if you picked up a dictionary and leafed through the dictionary and looked at words, beginning with L, to look up love, you'd find a picture of God the Father as the definition of love. So if you're a Christian and some of the words the apostles in the New Testament seem unloving to, uh, to, to, to you. Are you willing to allow God the Father to define love rather than you or your culture define love for yourself? And surely we can trust God the Father to define love. For as, as we see what his love is like. This is what the God of love is like in 1 John. If you go on to the next slide, please. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the definition of love, God sent the Lord Jesus into this world. uh, And he was the most precious person uh, that God the Father had. And he sent him into this world to die the death I should have died die the death, you should have died, because of our rebellion against God. He sent his precious only son to die for his enemies, so that his enemies can be turned into his friends and be forgiven. Now that is love, isn't it? And surely we can trust this God, if he is like this, if this is what he does, we can surely trust this God to define what love is, can't we? And so the lesser of one John will be seeking to answer this, this, this big question, how to know uh, that you really know God. And in these very short first four verses, the Apostle John begins his letter by telling us that we can be sure that what we've heard 2,000 years later about Jesus is true because the Apostles say that they are eyewitnesses. And as I've looked at it and I've looked at other evidence around it, I believe them. Also, we can be sure we have a genuine relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ if we accept and believe what the apostles have written. Basically, we are Christians if we trust what the apostles uh, say to us through the New Testaments. If we reject them, ultimately we're not rejecting the apostles, we're, we're rejecting God the Father. So we're going to pray together. Uh, let's pray and let's uh, c- uh, commit the rest of the time to our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that when God the Son stepped down into history, He was seen and heard, and touched, uh, by not only by the apostles but by many people. Thank you for their truthful testimony, and that we can rely on it. Heavenly Father, if anyone is particularly doubting uh, what uh, what you said about your, uh, what the apostles said about you, then please would you reassure them that these men who wrote the New Testament can be trusted. We also pray uh, that we can be sure that we have a relationship with you if we accept and believe what the apostles say. Thank you for revealing yourself through the Lord Jesus, the apostles. Would that be a particular encouragement to any Christian who is worried and doubting whether they know you? Please, by your Spirit, uh, make us sure of where we stand before you. And and Father, would that be uh, something that leads to great joy, and uh, celebration. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.